The writer Samuel Johnson once observed that a death sentence has a way of focusing a person's mind. Others in history have observed that when people know that the end of their life is coming soon, they reveal who they really are. Did they really have the stalwart faith they always claimed? Or in the end, did they divulge how fearful and doubtful they'd been all along? Or conversely, if someone had seemed a little wobbly in her faith, sometimes in the end, such a person reveals a spiritual clarity it turns out she'd had all along, and she dies full of faith and hope. Well, in John's Gospel, as the end of Jesus' life approached, Jesus also revealed who he truly was and what the heart of his ministry had been all along. Today on Groundwork, we'll think about this. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Dave, this is now program four of a seven-part series we're doing on the Gospel of John. So it might be a little surprising to some people to see that already now, in this fourth episode, we're already arriving in the upper room on the night of Jesus' betrayal. As we said before in this series, the Gospel of John breaks into roughly two major sections. So there's a prologue at the beginning in chapter 1. There's an epilogue at the end in chapter 21. We'll be looking at that. Mm -hmm. But in between, there's the Book of Signs, which starts toward the end of John 1 and goes through John 12, and then the Book of Glory, 13 through 20. We're just entering entering now the Book of Glory section. Right. We'll uh, catch the end of chapter 12 here. But uh, then, right, then we get to chapter 13. And uh, so we've got uh, John, you know, crams in huge swaths of Jesus' teaching in that upper room. I mean, we'll really be have five full chapters up there, 13 through 17. Who knows if Jesus really concentrated all of this teaching on that same night or if John is just locating it here. I mean, I think the disciples would have gotten pretty sleepy after a Passover meal with a little wine late into the evening. But but John presents it all there, and we'll be we'll be moving into that. But first, in John 12, John tells us about the triumphal entry, the entry into Jerusalem. That's in all four of the Gospels, of course. Uh, and his telling of that is pretty standard, so uh, we're not going to go over that. But then right after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, some Greeks approach the disciple Philip, and they say they want to see Jesus. Right. One of the things we've you'll see if you read the whole gospel yourself is that Jesus refers from time to time about what he calls his hour, hmm. kind of the moment. And in John 12, we find out that the hour has arrived. So Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very hour I came. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So in the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, 
there's this scene where Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Right. John doesn't show that, but he shows this rather amazing moment when Jesus prays to the Father to glorify his name, and the Father replies, I have done that, and I will do it now in a spectacular way. And not everybody gets it. Some people look around and they say, hmm, maybe there's a storm coming. I think I heard thunder. Uh, While others are puzzled and say maybe an angel spoke, but no, this is God the Father's testimony to Jesus, similar to what comes in the the other gospels at his baptism. And it's important, Dave, that God the Father speaks at this juncture. He's putting a stamp of approval on on everything Jesus just said, which is important because when these Greeks come up to Jesus, the things that Jesus says here, they go right to the central dynamic of the gospel, which is through a death, life will come. Through sacrifice, salvation will come. This is the paradox of the gospel. It's sometimes called Jesus is going to be lifted up, but on a cross, the seed has to fall into the ground and die to grow into new life. And so here's God the Father saying, yep, I approve of all of that. It it doesn't sound right to a lot of people. Um, It sounds backwards, paradoxical. This shouldn't work, but it's going to work, and I'm going to be glorified, and I'm going to glorify you, my son, through it. And there's also the paradox of Jesus' little analogy with a seed, because a seed, if you look at it, it looks like it's dead. Uh, It's dry. it, It doesn't have anything coming out of it. And yet when you plant this apparently dead thing in the ground, new life, transformed life springs from it. Paul would use the same analogy in describing the resurrection uh, of our bodies because of Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus is saying here, speaking of himself, I have to die. Unless I die, there can't be this new life that will come pouring into the world. And so there's the paradox of life coming out of death, and there's the paradox of glory, which we usually think of as in terms of height, you know, exalted, lifted up, and Jesus' glory will come via the most shameful imaginable way you could be lifted up as a common criminal, naked, nailed to a wooden post, and stuck up for everyone to look at and laugh and mock. And it's just... Uh, profoundly moving, this section in John 12. And there was the belief in the ancient world that that seeds were either already dead or they died after you buried them in the soil. We now know that, you know, seeds are just sort of potential life. They don't actually die. They germinate uh, when they get in the ground and get the right conditions. The seed Jesus is talking to is his whole body, and it's going to be actually dead. Uh, It will actually be laid uh, into a tomb. Uh, We'll see that scene uh, in a future program. But he really will be uh, dead uh, in every sense, and yet. God the Father is going to raise him up. You know, to the disciples, what happens to Jesus looks like a terrible accident. This is not the way it's supposed to go. And, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, the disciples repeatedly push back whenever Jesus says, I'm going to have to die. So it looks like a terrible accident, a, a sad ending for this rabbi from Nazareth. But again, God the Father's voice here says, this is no accident. This is the plan. This is the plan all along. So that's how John chapter 12 ends. And now uh, we're going to get ready to go uh, to an upper room where right off Jesus is going to show the true nature of his ministry and it's going to involve washing a lot of dirty feet. And so we'll look at that next. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. 
If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, as we prepare to go now into John chapter 13, let's remember something we said on earlier programs. This is now, as you said earlier too on this program, now we're turning to the book of glory. And the book of signs was the public ministry of Jesus. Now we enter a more private phase, just Jesus and the disciples for chapters on end here in this upper room. Again, all the way through chapter 17, we're going to be in this room. So that'll include this program and the next program in this series. We're just going to be in that In the room. upper room, yep. right, yeah. The first thing we're going to see in John 13 is an incident that he describes in detail that took place uh, before the Passover, the Last Supper, the communion service, and only John, as so often is the case, describes this incident. So we read that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Well, then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, Not everyone was clean. And when he had finished washing their feet and put his clothes back on and returned to his place, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And so the foot washing scene, Dave, you said uh, unique in John's gospel, not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, very, very famous worldwide. It's striking. We sometimes forget how it starts. And so in verse 3 here of John 13, we're told that Jesus knew that the Father had given him all power. And therefore, he stooped low and did the work of a servant. How different that is from how we react if we are given power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for us, power, whether it comes through political office or a great wealth uh, or influence, translates into a life of ease and comfort. You know, we have helicopters to fly us wherever we want to go. We we don't have to sit in traffic jams. Uh, We have a limousine to drop us off at the restaurant door and pick us up again when, when our meal is finished. We have people who do things for us. We have a whole stable of flunkies and gophers, you know. That's what power means in the world. And Jesus turns it all 
absolutely upside down and takes the role of the meanest, lowest servant who's going to wash these dirty, dusty feet in their sandals as they've been tramping around the roads all day. And no wonder Peter says to him, no, you can't do that to me. You're the rabbi. You're the master. And Jesus says, I, I better do it to you or you're, you don't belong to me. Yeah, I mean, Peter found it embarrassing to have uh, his master do this very menial task, which was a standard task of hospitality in those days. I suppose uh, some people have wondered, uh, why hadn't any of the other disciples offered to do yeah, this? Uh, right. They didn't have any servants. They, they didn't have much money, those those uh, those 13 people, Jesus plus the 12. Uh, but nobody else was doing it. But there it is again, Dave. We saw in the previous segment of this program in chapter 12, that central paradox of the gospel, that through humility and sacrifice and service, that is where the life of the cosmos uh, will come from. So Jesus does this knowing that he has all power. Uh, that's my favorite line that we don't often emphasize enough. But of course, in the history of the church and to this present day, Dave, a lot of people literally reenact this, sometimes at ordination services, or I know the president of my seminary, when he, he had his installation service at Calvin, uh, he washed the feet of some staff and students. The Pope in Rome on Holy Week always washes right. the feet of a poor man. On Maundy Thursday. Yep. But of course, we don't, most cultures don't actually have this as a ritual of hospitality anymore. It's not really a living sign of humility and service. And so the question we could ask in the church today is, what would be the equivalent of foot washing today? What kinds of things can pastors, elders, other leaders do that would be the equivalent of foot washing? And we could get kind of creative with that, I suppose. Yeah. You know, if we want to pause and ask, what's the meaning of this thing that Jesus did, this foot washing. On the one hand, there's a kind of symbolic meaning clearly because that's what Jesus is getting at in his exchange with Peter. And that's a little bit puzzling maybe. What exactly does he mean by a bath and by saying they're clean? But it certainly must have something to do with forgiveness and the fact that, okay, we need to be forgiven every day uh, we don't need to be washed totally because that happens once and for all, symbolized in our baptism, but also by faith. So there's that meaning. But the other thing that Jesus clearly points to is it's an example. I have left you an example. Yeah. The servant, as he said elsewhere, is not higher than his master. You need to do this, and not just symbolically on uh, Maundy Thursday every year, but actually daily in your life if you're a leader. Yep. So it, it means service to others, and that could take lots of forms. It, it might mean the pastor of a church uh, helps do dishes after the potluck and you know gets in the kitchen with the other volunteers. It might mean that all of us take the side of the vulnerable. We serve them. We, we stand up for people who are exploited. That might always be popular, uh, marching for justice or something, uh, standing up for the marginalized and serving them in that way. But maybe those are the ways that we follow this example. And indeed, Dave, you've mentioned the fact that this this is now called Maundy Thursday, and the reason for that is where Jesus grounds all of this ultimately in verse 34 of John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that's where we get the word Maundy from right. Maundy Thursday. It's from a mandate from the Latin mandatus command. And that's the new there. commandment, yeah. right. And it's also important, I think, 
to see that new commandment in the context of the foot washing. Because when Jesus says, I want you to love one another, he doesn't mean, I want you to feel warm towards each other. I want you to have this emotional, nice, uh, sentimental uh, attitude. He means, I want you to serve one another. That's what real love is. Real love is measured by its actions. So that's what Jesus calls us to and shows us the example. But as we have noted before, uh, there's a lot of material that follows and flows from this in the upper room, and we're going to look next at a famous passage at the beginning of John chapter 14. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this fourth program in a seven-part series on the Gospel of John, and we are uh, in the upper room already in this fourth episode. We just saw the foot-washing scene, Dave, in John 13, and Jesus' new commandment to love one another, and as you just noted at the end of the previous segment, that doesn't mean a hallmark, you know, lovey-dovey. It means serving one another, laying down our lives. And now we're going to move into John 14, but before we do, we need to remember how John 13 ended. It's so easy for us because we got these chapter headings. You just dive right into John 14 and you totally forget what just happened. Judas has now fled and has, you know, Jesus has said, one of you is not clean. You're going to betray me. The disciples' skin is still tingling from that revelation of a traitor in their midst. And then Jesus turns to sort of the de facto leader of the disciples, Peter, and predicts that he's going to deny Jesus up and down, forward and backward, left and right, every which way. He's going to deny him. And now the disciples are doubly shocked. And so as John 13 closes and we go into what we now call John 14, I think it's almost like um, a Thanksgiving Day meal that went really bad (laughs) and it's extremely awkward. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe the family started squabbling or quarreling around the table. And somebody wanted to hit Uncle Harold with a drumstick. But, uh, yeah, so there's this there's this rather abrupt, awkward ending to the Last Supper in John. And then we turn right to John 14 in these wonderful words of peace and comfort, where Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. And Philip said, well, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Yeah, wow. So don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus begins. And 
you want to ask, are you kidding? This is a very confusing time for the disciples. He's just broken bread and poured out wine and said, you know what? This is going to happen to me. This is my broken body and my blood's going to be poured out. And by the way, I'm leaving and uh, you're going to be on your own. And the are you, of course our hearts yeah. are troubled. They're confused. They're frightened. They're and worried. One of you is going to betray me, and the other one's going to deny me, and you're all going to fall away. But don't be troubled. It's like, Jesus, we know what trouble looks like, and this is it. If ever there were a night to have troubled hearts, this is it. And I actually, Dave, I often have suggested that you know the, the Bible never tells us how people say certain things. But I kind of think that Jesus probably had tears streaming down his own cheeks. Maybe his chin was quivering. He is troubled. I mean, he's sad about Judas. He's sad about Peter. He's not real thrilled about what's coming up for him. So I think he says these words, do not let your hearts be troubled with tears in his own eyes. But how wonderful that even so, Jesus is able to point to hope. Yeah, but notice also, because this slides by often, I think we don't stop and pay due attention to it. Believe in God, believe also in me, he says to them. So what are they supposed to do? Well, put your trust in God. But oh, by the way, trust in me too. This man who's shortly going to be arrested and beaten and crucified and dead and buried, but then he'll rise again. So all of this needs to be understood in light of what's going to happen ultimately. And, And here's one of the famous I am sayings in John's gospel, I am the way. Follow, follow me, he's saying again to Thomas. I'm the way. Well, the way Jesus is going to go over the next 24 hours is not any place anybody's going to want to follow. And in fact, they don't, including uh, Peter, of course, who will deny Jesus. And then there's the shocking revelation in the exchange with Philip that if they've seen Jesus, they've seen the Father all along, which. You know, sometimes in movies, Dave, you know, a kid's getting ready to go to college, and as the kid leaves the door, the father says, son, remember all the good times we had while you were growing up? And then you kind of get a, you see inside the son's mind, and he remembers when his dad used to push him on a swing and play ball with him and go to the movies with him. Well, that's sort of, I think, what happens to Philip. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And Philip remembers, wait a minute, I've seen you fall asleep in the back of boats. I've seen you get food stuck in your teeth. I've seen you laugh at jokes and cry at Lazarus's grave. And that's God? We've been seeing the Father in that? That had to be a a, a tough one. Well, but also remember the other things they had seen in the course of Jesus' life and heard. They heard him speak uh, graciously to a Samaritan woman at a well and uh, welcome her among his followers. They had heard him say to a sinful woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. They had seen him walk on water and multiply loaves and fish. So we come back to that statement early on in the very beginning of John's gospel, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Both God and humanity combined perfectly in Jesus and revealing to us exactly what God is like, not just in power, but in compassion and in humility and in love for us, grace. That's what they had seen. That's right. Full of grace and truth, John said in John chapter 1. And that also um, is indeed the Father. And you know, Dave, in an earlier program in this series, when we saw Jesus turn water into wine at just sort of an ordinary wedding reception, we were told that that was the first revelation of his glory. And we pondered that at the time. We said, but it doesn't seem that glorious just to turn, you know, a little parlor trick. You turn water into wine at an ordinary wedding. But we said at that time, 
the glory of God can pop up almost anywhere in the most ordinary circumstances. And indeed, that's what they've been seeing too. The glory of the Father when Jesus is laughing at a joke or being kind to an outcast or speaking words of, of forgiveness to anybody who comes along, that's glory. And we can find that glory in our everyday lives too, that means. And notice you can't separate Jesus and the Father. There's sometimes a tendency to say, well, the Father, he's the angry one, and Jesus is the nice one who kind of shields us from the Father's anger, but that's a caricature. Jesus is the way to the Father, and the Father is revealed perfectly in him. And Father and Son together are gracious and are determined to save us, and they're gonna do whatever it takes, and that's reason to say thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we'll hope you'll join us again next time as we study Jesus' Upper Room Discourse in chapters 14 to 17. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframemedia.com for more information. Our recording engineer is Dot Morris and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob. 